morning to you. Last Sunday, we began examining 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 deals with the delicate and divisive topic of church discipline. And to many saints, the concept of church discipline is entirely foreign. We've never seen it practiced, and we don't really know too much about it. To others, perhaps we've been in churches where church discipline has been weaponized, whereby certain saints and certain supposed sins are singled out, and other things are sort of swept under the rug. But biblically, church discipline is not a weapon, it's a tool, and it's a tool of last resort when someone is stridently unrepentant in their sin, and the sin is is of such a nature that it puts the church's, uh, the vibrancy of the church's witness in jeopardy in the community. So 1 Corinthians 5 is one of those very rare cases, a situation where the sin is hurting the church's witness, and yet the sinner is utterly and entirely stridently unrepentant. In fact, he's demanding that everyone else accept his unbiblical commitment to live in defiance to the teachings of Jesus. And and so, friends, as this is a sensitive subject, it is a subject fraught with misconceptions, I want to encourage you to leave your preconceptions at the door, and let's listen carefully to what the Scriptures have to say today. And I ask that if you haven't had the opportunity to listen to last week's sermon, that you go online and take a listen, uh, so that you get both halves and a a more full-orbed biblical treatment of this challenging topic. Now the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And, and that's speaking in context about our personal walk with Jesus, but it is a fitting title for our sermon today, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So if you would turn with me, if you would, in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 5. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture, please use one of ours. There's a blue pew Bible in front of you. And if you turn to page 1213, you should arrive at 1 Corinthians 5. And so as we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together in his text today. Lord Jesus, uh, we invite you as Lord of the church to speak to us with a clarity and a charity that we might be uh, able to be understanding what you're saying. Help us to not import our own thoughts, whether that's our traditions or emotions or misconceptions, but rather that we would build a framework around the scripture uh, in our thinking on this topic. And uh, we're grateful that we're not in a season where this seems particularly relevant, uh, but Lord, we pray uh, because it's your word and all scripture is, is useful for teaching rebuke and reproving, training the man of God and woman in righteousness, that we would understand this subject. And uh, we pray that we might not be in a position to have to deal with these things uh, because you've been so gracious to us. Uh, Let us be sobered long before something like this would occur. Help us to have tender and sensitive hearts at the movement of your spirit within us and your word upon us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the word of God says this in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. 
And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So verse 5 is a very important uh, verse when we think about the whys of church discipline. We'll come back to that in a minute, but just kind of in your mind, highlight verse 5 in your thinking. He turns to the congregation and he says, your boasting is not good. So they're, they're celebrating this immorality. They're not chastened by it. They're excited that they're so progressive that they've included it. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a, that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. You see, Paul had written an earlier letter, and he had spoken of the subject, and some people got in their head that that meant that they needed to run away from everyone who was worldly. He says, no, that's not the case. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is guilty of sexual immorality, or of greed, or is an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I want to encourage you, go back and listen to last week's sermon, because there's a whole lot of things there that we dealt with that people are often confused by. Uh, our points last week was that church discipline involves removing a professing Christian, not an unbeliever, but a professing Christian, from our local church fellowship because of unrepentant, strident sin. The second thing we learned is that church discipline is not about protesting the world for being worldly. That's what sinners behave like. And that's not the church's purview. It's about helping the church remain holy. And then we looked at point three. Church discipline is not about purging the things we don't like, the things we find abhorrent, but about dealing with sins that put the vibrance of our witness in grave jeopardy. And number four we learned, and this is very important, church discipline, like a good steak, is rare. Rare. So if you're in a church where like every other week you're disciplining somebody, either something is nuclear level wrong or maybe you misunderstand church discipline, right? So generally there are two kinds of churches, churches that never discipline and churches where it's like a sport. And both of those seem to be wrong. So why is church discipline so rare? And it's because most saints, most of the time, will come to their, consens their senses when they're lovingly confronted and patiently, prayerfully pleaded with to, to leave that thing that's causing the challenge. And so this brings us to point five today. Point five on your outlines is our first point together in the sermon, and that is this, number five. Church discipline is for the stridently unrepentant. It is not for simple sinners struggling for victory in an area of sin. Church discipline is reserved only for the stridently unrepentant and not for simple sinners struggling with a sin. I want you to listen to our passage today, and you need to hear the strident, defiant, unrepentant heart of this man who knows what he's doing is wrong, 
and he does not care and does not care to change. Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. Like, even lost people knew this wasn't okay. For a man has his father's wife. Now, uh, this phrase, has his father's wife, is very revealing. It reveals that she was not his biological mother. Uh, the, the Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians doesn't say a man has his mother. Rather, he has his father's wife. It's not his biological mother. Uh, this means it's his stepmother. It's his father's wife. Now, given the age differences between men and women in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for a man to be much older than his wife. So very probably, this stepmother is roughly the same age as this, this son. And, uh, and so... Uh, we don't know the story, we don't know, maybe the father's deceased, maybe the, the father is divorced, but either way, this was considered rightly incestuous, even among a pagan world that was highly promiscuous. Even they said, this is not okay. I'm told that you can read the writings of Cicero in his work Cluentes, or Gaius's work Institutus, and both of those men speak of this sort of situation as being utterly unacceptable even to the Romans. This is a bar too far. And so one biblical commentator noted on this passage, and I'm going to quote him, even as carnal as the culture of Corinth was, the entire city was abuzz about the member of the Corinthian church who was living in immorality with his own stepmother. And the writer goes on to note, quote, the world still loves to see Christians involved in immorality because it eases their consciences and it justifies their own loose lifestyle. Knowing this, one of Satan's favorite tactics is to get Christians involved in immorality. He runs the same play over and over and over again, and yet we keep falling for it, end quote. Sounds about right, doesn't it? There's nothing new. We like to think, you know what, one day I'm going to outgrow this. I'm just going to get to a place where this is not a problem for me. Well, let me tell you about a man after God's own heart. He was a king. His name was David. And David had a fateful fall with a beautiful maiden named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was having a bath, and David was sitting on the top of his kingdom, and he looked down, and he could see the situation. Do you know roughly how old David was when he fell with Bathsheba? About 50. So if you think you're going to outgrow temptation, you're probably wrong. Because a man after God's own heart at about 50 fell in a precipitous way. So let's remember the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and verse 13. You might want to write it next to this passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. So this believer who's become inappropriately, romantically entangled with his own stepmother, I want you to notice the text says nothing about disciplining the woman. She's given a free pass. Why? Well, this indicates that she was not a Christian. Lost people behave as lost people behave, and the church has no mandate to run around putting scarlet letters on everyone. It's to the Christian in this situation 
who refuses to rectify the situation. The other thing you need to see is this isn't a one-off incident, okay? Uh, this isn't an indiscretion that's unfortunate, and now that Christian is remorseful and repentant, because if it was, there'd be no need for church discipline. It isn't, oh, you've done something wrong, so let's come swat you. That's not how church discipline works. We do not discipline repentant sinners. We come alongside those people in grace, right? And, and, and so uh, something larger is happening here. This is no one-off occurrence when you read this situation in the Greek. There's this phrase, to have, and that's a, that's a scriptural euphemism, right? To have, uh, it's a euphemism for a relationship that has a, a, a sexual nature. And in the Greek, the word has is what they call a present active infinitive of circumstance. And that probably nerded you out for a second. But what that means is a present active infinitive of circumstance. It means this couple were living together and they were having an ongoing sexual relationship. They were very open about it and the church was cool with it. But God wasn't. God had forbidden this in Leviticus 18.8. Way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 18.8. And, and it's interesting, because now we're in the New Testament, and the New Testament is telling us, behold, there's still import in Leviticus 18.8. It, it means that the Old Testament sexual prohibitions extend into the New Testament kingdom condition. That's important, because sometimes some folks will say, wait a minute, isn't all that Old Testament stuff fulfilled in Christ?" We don't have to keep kosher. We don't keep the ceremonial law. Why do we have to keep other parts of the law? It's a great question, and there's a great answer for that. It is true that the ceremonial law was utterly fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. But why do we have a moral law? We have a moral law because it's an extension of our moral God. It's intrinsic to His very nature. And God's nature never changes. So the moral law will never be repealed, fulfilled, or removed. I want you to notice that Jesus, who did fulfill the the royal law, He fulfilled the law. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When Jesus talks about the moral law, He doesn't say, okay, I've taken care of that. He says, no, no, no. When Jesus talked about the moral side of the law, which is an extension of God's holy character, when when, when we talk about thou shalt not murder, one of the Old Testament Ten Commandments, Jesus radically increased the strength of the moral law. By teaching in Matthew 5.21, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, for whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He doesn't repeal the moral law. He intensifies it. It's larger than you think. Since God's moral law is is non-repealable because it's an extension of God's holy nature, that's going to have some implications to our New Testament situation. Equally, Jesus didn't overturn God's moral law regarding sexuality. Instead, he radically intensified it. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Does Jesus repeal the moral law? No, he can't because it's an extension of who God is. The moral law is an extension of our God's character. So that means God's standards on on sexuality have not changed, even if the times have changed. That means it's always sinful to murder, to steal, to lie, 
And it's always sinful to keep your marriage bed uh, less than pure and undefiled. Now, the culture and even the legislature may disagree with that, but God's moral law is written in our hearts, isn't it? He wrote it in our hearts. You know what that means? That means that you and I as sinners, we can always justify our sin, right? So if I want to do something against you, I can come up with a reason why it's okay for me to do it. But when you do it against me, I cry out to everyone else for justice. I can't believe he did that to me. I can't believe you stole that from me. I can't believe you did that to me. You know, we can justify our adultery, but when we have adultery committed against us, we suddenly say this is unjust. Because the law of God is written on our hearts. All right, so we're speaking today a little bit about incest, and it's quite icky. And I'd like to remind you that I didn't write the Bible. I just preach it. So this is the hazard of preaching verse by verse through the Bible. In order to preach the whole counsel of God, we can't avoid the hard text. And if this subject makes you uncomfortable, I'd like for you to join the club. You ought to try preaching on it today. But I want you to understand something because it's really important. Sometimes people accuse Christians of having some pie in the sky and the sweet by and by Pollyanna view of the world that's utterly unrealistic. The Christians don't really understand the, the grimy underbelly of modern society. Well, you tell me. Does the Bible tackle the human condition and the rebellious consequences of our action? Is this passage a pious fantasy of glorious ecstasy and perpetual victory, or is it kind of icky, but sadly very real and very true? Friends, our world is broken. God knows that. He, he wrote a love letter to us to help us get out of the pit that we put ourselves in. God is not ignorant of our iniquity. He does not shy away from things that we try to shy away from and not talk about. God is God. And so Hebrews 14, 13 is true. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God already knows it. You not telling him doesn't hide it from him. God not only already knows it, before you were ever born, God made a plan to fix it. He sent his one and only begotten son so that any sin that you're in can be put on Christ and Christ's righteousness can be put on you. But you have to reach out in faith and say, God, you're God and I'm not. I'm a sinner and you're not. I need a savior and I'm not. Jesus is. I want you to know that God isn't afraid of sinners or we wouldn't have this challenging passage in our Bible. God is reaching out to sinners. He longs to redeem them. And remember the theme of our book. It's God's messy grace project turning worldly sinners into heavenly saints. He's taking these Corinthians and all their muck and yuck and where they're stuck and he is gloriously washing and cleaning and redeeming and changing and sometimes it's slow and sometimes it's not linear and sometimes we take two steps forward and we take three steps back but he is 
moving those people towards Jesus. Philippians says that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. You see, back in the Old Testament, God already told us that he knows that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, that each of us has turned his own way. And so the Lord was going to lay on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah predicted this hundreds of years before Jesus did it. And that's why Jesus, as predicted by Isaiah, was a lamb led to the slaughter. It's true, just as Isaiah promised, that for the transgression of my people, Jesus was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Friends, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, to make him a guilt offering. He was despised and rejected by men, Isaiah says. A man of sorrows, a man familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took upon our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows, and yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And that's why in the New Testament, in Acts 3.19, the Bible implores us, because all that's true of Jesus, repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out and times of refreshing would fall on you. Not that guy next to you, not me, not the preacher, not grandma, you. Whatever you've done, you. Jesus loves you. Do you love him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you been washed by him? Well, maybe you're already a Christian, praise God. But you've gotten yourself tangled up in a web of icky stuff, like this dude in our passage. And so this web of icky stuff, it clings to you, and the more you try to stretch out against it, like the bug in the web, the more it wraps you up. I don't know if you've been told this, Christian, but Christians struggle with sin. Did you know that? The devil's going to tell you you're the only one. The Bible tells you it's common to everyone. One of those is right. One of those isn't. Temptation does not stop when you meet Jesus. In fact, the devil likes to throw as much as he can at the Christian to try to silence our witness. Why? Because saints walking in defeat seldom tell the world about the God of victory. Amen? Saints walking in defeat can seldom tell the world about the God of victory. It's a simple thing. So he's going to throw whatever he can to get you thrown off from your mission. Satan knows this. Jesus knows this. Which is why 1 John 1 tells the Christian, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friend, the fellow in our story is a professing Christian, but he's walking in perversion, and he needs to repent, but he won't. And it's critically important for us to remember that church discipline is never to the repentant sin struggler. We don't ever discipline the repentant sin struggler. 
Church discipline is only for the stridently unrepentant among us after they've been lovingly exhorted to live in holiness and not in wickedness in this. But Satan loves to have us get it backwards in our churches. And so uh, we, we, we tend to, to coddle the people God would tell us to clap, and, and we tend to clap the people we should be coddling. We get it in reverse. You know, it's been well said that the Christian army is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Instead of coming aside someone who's really broken in sin, and, and they're coming and they're like, I need help. That person needs help. It doesn't need to be beaten. It needs to be brought forth. What do we do with a brother who's struggling in sin? I want you to flip for a moment to Galatians 6, and we're going to investigate briefly God's word on this. What do we do with a brother who's struggling in sin? They're still trying to fight the good fight. They may not be winning, but they are trying. It's on page 1239 of your Blue Pew Bibles, 1 Corinthians 6, page 1239. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Not meanness. This is a person who's like, I need and want help. You come in a spirit of gentleness. Now keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, and you're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So church discipline is not for the struggler. It's for the stridently unrepentant. And now, to the stridently unrepentant, the Bible is going to say some things, to the stridently idle busybody, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, that person is to be warned, to be warned again, and then put out of the church. But to the repentant, it's different. To the repentant, Jesus says this in Mark 6, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friends, bitterness is an acid that will eat away the container. If you are upset with someone and they are genuinely repentant and you're holding on to it, that's going to kill you. It's like drinking poison to kill your enemy. Do you know who the poison kills if you drink it? You. And the Bible says, don't let a root of bitterness. Now, there are situations where the other person's not repentant. There's a whole, I'm talking about if, the, if there's a possibility to bring this back together because there's real repentance, then that's different. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. Peter puts it somewhat plainer, 1 Peter 4, 7. Now, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers multitude of sins. What's going to cover a, love, uh, a multitude of sins here at Calvary? Love. What's not? Pharisaical scorekeeping. In 1961, she said that. But you know saints that are holding that around. Does it make them better and brighter and joyous and peaceful? Or does it make them bitter and they look like sour pickles? And you shake their hand and a little dill juice comes out. Don't be a pickle. Be a saint. You and I are sinners. Let me tell you what. Sinners, when sinned against, well, we tend to respond sinfully and we start a terrible cycle. Where hurt people hurt people, which is why Jesus commands us to forgive one another lavishly and repeatedly. Now, you've got to ask for forgiveness. 
can't just get forgiveness without asking for it. Repentance releases forgiveness. God forgives everybody who repents, and He judges everybody who doesn't. That's how mercy can triumph over judgment. But you've got to ask, and you've got to be repentant. Now, church discipline in our passage, we'll go back to that for a second. The church discipline is never about protecting our shibboleths. Remember in the Old Testament, there was uh, this story where these guys were coming across, and they were trying to determine if they were from this area or from that area, and they would say, well, pronounce the word shibboleth. And if they were from this one area, they couldn't pronounce it the normal way. They pronounced it a different way. It's like asking a southerner, you know, uh, all of us know y'all. Okay, you're not from New Jersey. Y'all, that's not a very New Jersey thing. Shibboleth is kind of like that. It's a tell, a cultural linguistic uh, tell. And shibboleth, over time, became a term to describe when we have a small pet issue that we think is a big deal. And church discipline is never about protecting our shibboleths. Recently, I ran across the story of a preacher who had sad memories of deacons peering into the high school gym on Fridays so they could church discipline anyone caught dancing on Sunday. That would be an example of using church discipline as a weapon where you're protecting your shibboleth. The Bible doesn't forbid dancing, but these deacons thought so. Friends, that kind of church discipline is ridiculous, it's abusive, and it's unbiblical. So if that's your understanding of church discipline, you can toss that one out the window. We don't discipline folks for drinking because the Bible only forbids drunkenness. And we don't discipline the repentant sinner who's sincerely struggling with a sin. We come alongside that brother and we try to help them out of the sin. Church discipline is for the Christian who says, well, here's what God's word says, but I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to live like this. What are you going to do about it? Well, we might have to 1 Corinthians 5. But But even when we discipline, you need to always remember the purpose. And that's point six. Point six, for the individual... For the individual, church discipline is not intended uh, to be punitive. For the individual, church discipline is intended to be redemptive and hopefully, ultimately, restorative. That is, whenever a church reluctantly and rarely has to go into a discipline situation, the the goal is to be redemptive. The goal is is to hopefully be restorative and bring that person back into fellowship that they will wake up and come to their senses and see that, ooh, this is a problem. It's not meant to be punitive. Verse 5. But you will deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The goal of this is to do something drastic to try to make something more important achieved. Now, when some people read this, they say, Paul wants this guy to die? Probably not. Yes, there is a sin unto death mentioned in some scriptures. In 1 John 5, it speaks of a sin unto death. That's God's prerogative. He can just promote you. He's so committed to your holiness that for some of you, you're so committed to not have that that he says, you know, you can just come home early. Now you can be holy. You're not doing so good here. I'll bring you where you'll be holy. Wow. Ananias and Sapphira experienced this in the book of Acts. They had an opportunity and they chose to do something else and God said, I'm going to promote you. And then the spouse came in and did the same thing. I'm going to promote you too. And They didn't have a problem with that anymore. (laughs) They struggle with sin no longer. (laughs) 
they were with Jesus and it no longer had a pull in their life. Paul makes mention in this book of people who have fallen ill and even passed away because of how they desecrated the Lord's Supper in their time together. So yeah, there is a sin unto death, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here because the near context of 1 Corinthians 5 would be 1 Corinthians 3. And it would seem that 1 Corinthians 3's understanding of, of the flesh is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. So flip back for just a moment from 1 Corinthians 5 to 1 Corinthians 3 and uh, listen again as Paul explains the difference between fleshly living and godly living. Fleshly living and godly living among the Christian. 1 Corinthians verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. That is, you were not thinking like Christians, you were thinking like pagans. I'm speaking to you as infants in Christ. You're born again, but you don't get it yet. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still, here's the term, of the flesh, worldly. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, that's the evidence of worldliness. Are you not of the flesh? behaving in only a human way. The pagans respond to things like this, not the Christian. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So instead of being godly, you're being worldly. Instead of being spiritual, you're being natural. Instead of being God-redeemed and God-redirected, you're being merely human. So Paul is saying, look, in our passage, chapter 5, come back to chapter 5, if this professed Christian, when lovingly confronted would rather live in flagrant, unrepentant sin, sin that is of such a nature that it harms the vibrance of the witness of an entire congregation, and that saint's attitude is just deal with it. I'm going to live how I'm going to live. Well, the church does deal with it. And it deals with it not by going along with it, but by withdrawing that person from fellowship and indeed membership. Listen to verse 5. You're to deliver this man to Satan, remove him from the church, for the destruction of the flesh, not his human nature, but his worldly nature, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The idea is that he would come to his senses and start living for Christ. The hope is, like the prodigal son of Luke 15, that this person will eventually see the error of his ways and return to the father's house. Now, now sometimes in our stubborn selves, the only way to get certain saints in certain situations to come to our senses is our loving Father will let us eat the husks that sin leaves us. Remember the guy in, in Luke 15? It, it wasn't until he was eating the pea pods and the pig slop. In fact, when he wanted to eat the pig pods, but he couldn't because they belonged to the pigs. The unclean animals were eating better than the, the guy's son. And sometimes some of us are so stubborn that the only way that God gets our attention is he lets us have the full measure of where we're headed. And, and so sometimes it's only the season in the pig pen before our strident repentance gives into the reality, you know what, it's really better back with my father. I, I need to make a change. Sometimes some saints will only learn the hard way. But even in the hard way, folks can still learn. Did you know that? So there's a reason for church discipline, and there's a reason it's rare. It's never intended to be punitive, but hopefully restorative, but it's always up to the individual. The church can do it right, and the individual can say, I don't care, I don't want this, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. 
I want to just remind you, how does the father receive the wayward, wandering son when he finally comes to his senses? Does he say, you dope, I can't believe you did that. I'm so sick of you. That's what the Bible says. Jesus says, and the father arose. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on that wayward, returning son. And the father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, hey, quickly bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, put shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and let us celebrate for my son was dead, but now he is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to celebrate. Does that sound punitive or restorative? Hmm. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me, a sinner. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. Are you swept up in the love of Jesus or are you rowing against the current doing your own thing and it's getting pretty tiring to swim against the current that's trying to pull you back to the safety of the harbor. Leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Now listen again to 1 Corinthians 5, 5. You're delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Friends, for the individual, church discipline is intended to be redemptive and hopefully ultimately restorative. Its intention is not punitive. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those he loves. If you didn't love your kid, you'd say, Go ahead and play in the street. College is expensive. But you love your kid, so you stop him, and you have a conversation. And when there isn't a conversation, you may have a, 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 a swat with a tot, depending on your parenting style, or you may withdraw graham crackers. I don't know how you do it, but you do something, because you love him, and you understand that him getting squished is not a good idea. God disciplines those he loves. Well, that means church discipline is not unloving. It means it's not unchristlike so long as it is not unbiblically, flippantly, or punitively done. So, you see, if God's house is operating biblically, then we're supposed to be closer than family. There is a kinship and fellowship amongst God's people in a healthy biblical church that is absolutely unreplicable anywhere else in the world. You won't get it on your softball team, your golf buddies, your work group. You won't find it in, in any other area. If you've got real biblical koinonia, it's a, it's a kinship and a closeness that you can't replicate anywhere in the world. Now, that's why church discipline is so ineffective in 2019 in North America. Too often today, we have shallow relationships in our plastic, keep each other at arm's distance, anonymous services. And when you're asked to leave that kind of church, you can replicate that kind of experience that in and out in an hour, your next service is free and six people know your first name and nobody else. You can replicate that in a hundred other places. 
But if you deeply love your brothers and sisters, then separation from that congregation is incredibly painful because you've lost the loves of your life, not just the hour you go to twice a month if the weather's not too good. If you really become the family of God together, if you live out verse 11, it'll hurt not to associate with that person, not even to eat with one as such. And that will hopefully get that strident sinner who's heading to destruction, who's heading in a direction that will only lead to his own pain, that'll hopefully get that sinner's attention. And it will induce them to a desperately needed course correction back to the safety of the harbor. And I want to tell you, that's probably what happened in our passage. See, we read bits and bobs of scripture and we don't read enough macro scripture together. I want you to turn for a second to 2 Corinthians 2.5. 2 Corinthians 2.5. 2 Corinthians 2.5 is on page 1228 of your Blue Pew Bibles. 2 Corinthians 2.5. 2 Corinthians 2.5 describes a brother who many scholars believe is the very one in 1 Corinthians 5 in our passage today. In 2 Corinthians 2.5, Paul writes again to the Corinthian church, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. Hurt the name of Christ in your community. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about somebody where the whole church decided to punish him, put him out. And he says, this is enough. The guy has come to his senses. Verse 7, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Were you obedient to put out the strident, and are you obedient to take him back when he's repentant? Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I forgive anything has been for the sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his design. 2 Corinthians 2.5 is an indication that very probably the person in our passage in 1 Corinthians 5 did come to repentance, because the church did do this discipline. That the punishment of the majority, this exclusion, was enough. And so he repented. And now the congregation needs to turn and forgive and comfort him so he won't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, but rather they are to reaffirm their love for him because he was a brother. So for the individual, church discipline is intended to be redemptive and ultimately restorative, but there is also another reason why churches in instances of strident unrepentance of such a nature that it hindrances, it's a hindrance to the vibrance of our witness need to deal with it. So to the individual, it's restorative, not punitive. But to the congregation, it has another situation. That's point seven. For the congregation, church discipline is intended to prevent further corruption. For the congregation, church discipline is intended to prevent further corruption. I want you to look at verse six, seven, and eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, 
the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the metaphor Paul chooses is leaven, like yeast. In Scripture, leaven is used always of influence, and in most cases of evil influence, but in Matthew 13, 33, Jesus uses it of the good influence of the kingdom of heaven, but it's always a metaphor of influence, that a little bit will penetrate everything around it. And so this leaven metaphor is teaching this truth. If we let strident, unrepentant sin fester among us, it will embolden other brothers to justify their own sin, and soon we'll all become hardened to it, and our church will be overrun with it. I'll say that one more time. If we let strident, unrepentant sin fester amongst us, it will embolden other brothers to justify their own sin, and soon we'll become hardened to it, and our church will be overrun with it. It's like driving. So we're on our car in New Jersey, and I've seen you in your car in New Jersey. We see each other, right? All right I'm a little CRV with a fat guy. Yeah, it's me. Okay, so we're driving. And if you're in the fast lane, you'll only go so fast. You go too fast in the fast lane, and you're going to meet Smokey Bear over there, right? So you only go so fast. But if you're in the second lane from the fast lane, and people are going boom, 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 well, then the posted speed limit is more suggestive, right? Do you see what's happening, how a little leaven? Because around other brothers who are going faster, our issue is not really a big deal. So if we're going to let strident, open, unrepentant sin that hurts our witness remain, that's going to make every one of us feel like, well, if, if you can be in that situation, who's going to come talk to me about this situation? It emboldens the rest of us. So Paul then takes us from the bakery and the yeast of our problems over to biblical history. The Jews, well, they also celebrated a festival. It was a festival of Passover. How did they celebrate it? They celebrated it by removing all the yeast from their houses. Do you remember Hmm. symbolizing they were removing all the sin from their homes. They physically removed the yeast to talk about how we're to remove the sin. The Passover lamb was coming to take away the sin every year. But Christians are Easter people. It's our Passover is Easter, right? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. And so for Christ, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb, and he has been sacrificed Therefore, celebrate this festival not with the old leaven, the junk that we got saved from, the leaven of malice and evil and all the junk we used to be, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we ought to just clean out all that old leaven so we might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You see, our position ought to become our possession the longer we're a Christian. We are positionally holy through the shed blood of Christ. We will ultimately be holy uh, when we're given incorruptible bodies, when, when the tempter is incarcerated and this fallen world is incinerated. But right now, we are tempted. Remember I said Christians still get tempted? And so right now, the Bible says the world is squeezing us into its mold. Do you feel it? The world squeezes us. And right now, our flesh caves for what we crave. 
So right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ought to do what the Bible says and throw off everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's the verse that we titled our sermon with. Let us discipline ourselves for the purpose. You know, it says the sin that so easily entangles. Do you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't tell us what that sin is. Because that sin is different for you than it is for you than it is for me. And when I beat that sin, the devil's going to say, crumbs, here's a new one. If you won't eat the Swiss, he'll hand you some Colby Jack. There will always be cheese in the mousetrap. He'll get to Lindberger if he has to. If you're Norwegian, it'll probably be Yados. But you understand the metaphor, right? We ought to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles you right now. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So the rare application of church discipline done in a biblical way acts as a way to help the sinner see the error of his ways and it serves as a check for further contamination within the congregation. Otherwise, we're all going to be like that person in the middle lane thinking it's okay because everybody else is going faster. Brings us to point eight. Point eight today. For our generation, it's important to note that the problem in Corinth wasn't so much the particular sin engaged in. It was the fact the congregation was tolerant of what God said was abhorrent for which they should have been repentant. Let me say that again. In our generation, in 2019, it's important to note that the problem in Corinth, this incestuous relationship, that's not really the issue. It's not the particular sin that they were struggling with. The thing that's analogous to us is the fact that the congregation was tolerant of what God said was abhorrent and it's something they should have been repentant. Listen again to the Word of God, chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And here's what Paul's shocked with, verse 2. And you are arrogant! Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed. Your boasting is not good. They were saying, we're so progressive here. We love everybody here. Anything goes here. So I'm going to ask you a question, friend. Where might this apply to churches in 2019? What are we celebrating that we ought to be mourning? What are we striding in that we ought to be repenting of based on the Word of God? I thought about that a little bit, and I don't want to make a giant list of new shibboleths, but I think there's some pretty clear applications. Here's a couple that came to mind. Friends, there are supposedly evangelical churches, churches that say, we believe the Bible, we believe the Bible's the Word of God, and Jesus is the Son of God, and we should follow the Bible. And supposedly evangelical churches today who reject what the Scriptures say about simple things like who their elders ought to be, that elders can be male or female, that elders can be moral or immoral, that elders can be God-called or simply man-applauded, as long as they can fill the place. There are churches that fly flags out front that publicly embrace things that God says, you know what, that's not my best for you. That's not my plan for you. I have a better plan for you, a different plan for you. My friend, if you think about this in 2019, maybe in no other time in the history of the North American church, you can name any clearly stated sin in Scripture, any sin. Like the Bible says, that's a sin. And without very much effort, you can go on Google and you can find a supposedly Christian scholar 
an influential blogger, a local congregation, or possibly an entire denomination that not only says it's okay, but we're gracious because we not only tolerate it, we celebrate it. Now you tell me, does 1 Corinthians 5 apply today? God's people are not given license to redefine God's design and then pretend that it's all fine. It's not fine. And anybody who tells you it is, is lying. They're telling you whatever your itching ears want to hear. It's exactly like the Old Testament when the false prophets, and there were many of them, came up. There were only a few real prophets, but there were many false prophets. And the false prophets always said the same thing, peace and safety, peace and safety. God's plan is peace and safety. And yet God was sending servant after servant after servant saying, repent and return to the Lord. And it was either peace and safety, live how you want and God's okay with it, or it's repent and return to the Lord. But it's not both. 35 years ago, I decided to look up old commentators. How would old commentators deal with this passage? Let's get out of 2019. Let's see what people would do 30, 40 years ago. First commentator, 35 years ago, wrote, quote, perhaps they looked on the incest as an expression of their Christian liberty, or perhaps they looked on their toleration of it as an expression of their Christian love, end quote. They were wrong. 34 years ago, a different commentator from a different denomination, he wrote this about this passage, quote, spiritual pride has a way of blinding us to reality. And we often take pride in things we ought to repent of. I can almost imagine someone rationalizing the situation in such a way that would sound very familiar to modern ears. Now, he wrote this 34 years ago. Quote, ours is a broad-minded church. I suppose as long as he stays active in the church and he does his part, I don't think it's anyone's business what he does in private. Besides, he's a lot younger than she is and they seem to have a meaningful relationship. What they really need from us is affirmation and not judgment. The commentator asks, sounds familiar? 34 years ago. Because you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. We all go, oh, I can't believe our age is like this. Our age is just like every other age. This is how it was in Corinth. This is how it is today. Because the human condition isn't any different. We're all sinners, and we all need a Savior, and we're all very easy to justify our situation. But the Word of God says this. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality of, among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And this is what Paul can't believe. And you're arrogant as a congregation. Ought you not mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Your boasting is not good. With that in mind, let's pray. Every head bowed and every eye closed today. Lord Jesus, may we not be arrogant in this. May we be humble and biblical. May each of us come to our senses long before our strident unrepentance puts our church's witness in jeopardy. Lord, help us to come alongside one another in love. Help us not to be Pharisees that beat one another, but be friends that befriend one another. May our hearts be tender and may we lift one another out of the pit just as we have been lifted out of pits by the kindness of other brothers. We recognize the warning in Scripture not to be dragged down when we're reaching out. Lord, help us to walk that balance of being a, an uplifter and not a person sucked in. Thank you, Lord, that these verses contain data that we really need in 2019. 
We pray they might not be needed at Calvary for decades, that we wouldn't have any cause to discipline because we keep short accounts with you and with one another. We pray that you'd help us to love well and to forgive well, that we might not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For those so entangled, may you give them the strength and the wisdom to throw off every sin, including that one that hinders. And this week, run the race for Jesus with renewed vigor, hope, joy, and focus. Last week is last week, and yesterday is yesterday, but help them this day to choose you as who they will serve, and help them make a streak of your mercies being new each morning in this situation. May we understand our next level as a church, not numbered in nickels, noses, and numbers, not as buildings, bucks, or baptisms, but as your word speaks, that the next level for the Christian is a joyous holiness. For you are holy, and your presence in our lives is supposed to produce great joy. And so we believe your word to us in Psalm 30 and verse 5. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Bring us your joy as we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Thank you for a relevant witness. May we be a holy, joyous, contagious people for you. Amen.